Welcome to Outdoors. I'm Brian Schaefer, and today I'm speaking with Hannah Bradenrud about the importance of physical exercise in nature for optimal brain performance. Hannah combines her organizational psychology and neuroleadership background with over two decades of experience and natural ability to help others feel genuinely seen and supported. I met Hannah a few years ago at a local in-person networking group here in Bozeman, and she's helped me focus my business development efforts and many others and is a fixture in the Bozeman community with small business owners and entrepreneurs. Thank you for being on the podcast, Hannah. Great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Brian. Uh, I just want to start off saying I love reading books about Scandinavian practices for restoration, like the Finnish, how do you say it, Higge? Like that feeling. Higge, yeah. Yeah, I've got a a doormat outside my front door here that says Higge. So I kind of wanted to lead in with a little bit of your background, um, because you you come from a place that's kin to my heritage. And um, yeah, just maybe give us a little bit of your background and how you got involved in doing what you do. I grew up and born and raised in Oslo, Norway. And so my, you know, my whole family is still in Scandinavia. Uh, Some of my siblings moved to Sweden and settled there, but I'm the only one here in the States. I moved to the States for college. Um, But yeah, so I grew up, you know, in Norway, which uh, you know, it's a, it's a long coastline with a lot of mountains. Uh, and so there's plenty of snow and, you know, relatively cold winters, depending on where you are in the country. And, uh, um, but I always, I don't know, I always somehow, since I was a little kid, uh, knew I would, I wanted to study in the States. My dad had done that. And so I ended up going to college in, in Oklahoma and, uh, stayed there for a long time, which is, uh, a landlocked state that's flat with with no ocean. So both of those things were kind of missing in my life for a long time. Um, and I didn't really realize that until I started traveling to Colorado for work and I would just see the mountains and just feel so drawn to being in the mountains. And I just knew I had to make a change. And so opportunity came up with a company I worked for at the time and, um, and I had an opportunity to transfer to Colorado. So I, at the time I was working in technical sales and more specifically sales training. So I really, you know, I, I enjoy working with people. And so I liked sales because it involved working with people, but I knew I wanted to work with people in a different capacity. So I had, a, I got opportunity to start working in training and development while I was working, you know, in a corporate um technical organization and um and I really just you know I I knew for the first time in in my career that I was at in the right place at the right time doing something that really fed my soul in a different way where I just um I was I felt like I was using my skills and abilities in um in a more meaningful way that you know um that it wasn't just a job anymore. And so, and while I was working there and transitioning into training and development, I was also um, in a graduate program in organizational psychology. So I, you know, was studying um, human behavior specifically in the context of organizational life, right? How teams work and how we kind of work together as people and, um, and then I've just kind of had this ongoing interest of understanding human behavior. And that led me to 
studying, you know, neuroscience and, and the human brain. And so um, about maybe three years ago or so, I went through a, a certificate program in neuroleadership. So the Neuroleadership Institute really is an organ global organization that teaches neuroscience to professionals. Um, a lot of people in the coaching realm and um, business leaders and, you know, people in, in different professions that work with human beings inside organizations um, are, are kind of part of this, this program. So you, it really, for me, was fascinating to just study the brain. My interest was mostly from a learning perspective, like understanding how we learn, how we learn new behavior, how we influence, how we are influenced, um, how we connect with each other on a social level. So how we can lead people from a place of, you know, more awareness and understanding, you know, just how to change our own behavior and help to influence others for positive change. That's really my motivation. So yeah, I went through that um, program and really just been fascinated with the brain ever since. I moved to Bozeman with the thought I could work remotely. The, the work I do, I can do from anywhere. And so I've been doing this for a while now. And now everyone seems to be in this boat <laughs> of remote work. And, you know, for me, I've, always, I've grown up, you know, my dad was a forest ranger and my mom's an English teacher. I was out being dragged, sometimes literally dragged out in the mountains, you know, a lot. Um, and now it's like something I have to do for restoration and to let my, you know, kind of my mind and my brain open up to be able to solve these hard problems. It's where I do most of my real deep thinking is out away from my computers. Is the development of that outdoor connection and brain restoration something that was a trained behavior because of the way I was, you know, nurtured? <laughs> or are we hardwired to experience and learn things through nature? I, I, I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Research would indicate that we're hardwired for that. Um, and I think those of us who maybe experienced that at an early age just are maybe more aware of the, the benefits of it because it's been a part of our lives and we've seen the difference that it makes, right? Um, but yeah, there's absolutely research that shows that um, just being in nature even even something as seemingly insignificant as having a view outside your window that's like open where you can see maybe open fields or um, just connect with nature visually can help actually uh, restore a lot of connections in your brain and, and unload some stress and, and help you kind of recenter and refocus. Um, and we were chatting a little bit earlier and, and you talked about kind of this Zoom fatigue that I think many of us are experiencing as we're increasingly more on video conferences. And, and you would think, I mean, it's not that different, right? From talking to somebody in a, in a coffee shop. Well, for the brain, it really is. It draws on, on different resources. You know, the, the brain is an energy hog. It makes up about 2% of our body weight, but requires about 20% of our blood flow, our oxygen intake, our energy consumption. So literally we burn calories 
our brains burn a lot more calories um, by comparison with to the rest of the body. And so when we have to use focus, and so focus is focus and decision making are two of the most energy costly activities that the brain can do, right? So the brain's always trying to conserve energy because we it wants to make sure that it has reserves for any kind of threat situation, right? Where we have to react, where we have to get into fight or flight, like literally run away from danger or fight a bear or something. Um, <clears throat> so that's why we're, you know, the brain's gonna try to get us on autopilot a lot. So when we have jobs that require a high level of focus throughout the day, that energy just sort of wears out. It's like a battery, right? That um, literally runs out of juice. And when you're out of juice, you're out. You got to restore that battery and recharge it before it can, before you can use it actively again. So there's been studies on, you know, what times of day are better for certain types of tasks, like a lot of analytical thinking and uh, critical decision-making for most people tend to be like it's best to do those in the morning because you have your executive function, your prefrontal cortex that is the you know executive function of the brain is really sharp at that time, you know. And later in the day, for most people, unless you're like an extreme night owl, that then it works a little bit differently because then you have to have the morning for recovery time and you hit your peak kind of in the afternoon and early evening and and later in the evening. Um, but for most of us, it means later in the day is more optimal for um, just sort of creative work that doesn't require that analytical sharp focus because it we can then make better connections. The brain is allowed to make connections of those weaker connections when that executive function is not as active. And that's why also when we are going for a walk or we're just in nature, you're on your mountain bike or skiing or hiking, um, it just stimulates a different part of the brain. When we're, and, and it allows you to, you mentioned, you know, some of your deeper thinking and, you know, that those new connections in the brain that allow for insight versus there's different types of decision-making, right? Suddenly we, we have insight into a problem, maybe something we've been working on for a long time, boom, the solution's there. You don't know exactly how it got there, but you have this like eureka moment or aha moment. Those often happen when we're in nature. I mean, it can happen when we're in the shower. It happens when we're not like actively thinking, It'll, you know, but our brains are able to, to make those connections. Um, so to kind of circle back around to that Zoom conversation, right? When we're when we're in person with someone, um, the brain's always reading, doing a lot of, you know, subconsciously. We're we're reading facial expressions. We're reading the energy that we get from the other person, right? We're making assessments initially when we meet somebody new. Is this person a friend or a foe? Is this someone I should approach? or someone I should like back off from. Um, but a lot of the stuff that we do to connect with another person, we do it intuitively and naturally in person. When we're on a video conference, 
some of that is missing, right? We, yes, we hear the words and we hear the voice tone and inflection and we can even see facial expressions, but the brain's working a lot harder to pick up on all of those clues when we're on a Zoom call. And likewise, like I'm having to, I, I work, I do a lot of training and I facilitate remotely a lot and I have to work a lot harder to bring forward the same level of energy and translate that on a Zoom call versus when I'm in person where it just seems to naturally happen because I connect with the energy of the audience. And does it seem like also the kind of the pacing and the time is more compressed? So there isn't as much kind of relaxation between moments. It's like constant energy output. Yeah, I think that's part of it too, right? Uh, again, I'm like using my focus constantly for that time that we're having this conversation versus, yeah, there's more natural pauses, there's more natural breaks, right? So again, the the, the brain's just working a lot harder <laughs> and using a lot more focused energy than when we're just hanging out in the coffee shop. Yeah, I, I'm seeing a lot of similarities from uh, physical performance and mental performance in terms of time management is really about energy management, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Being able to figure out when we're optimizing our, <laughs> that valuable focus time and when we can have more open reflection time and, and kind of when to do the right, the right tasks. I know, you know, if you're training um, for a, you know, an outdoor sport, you're going to be stress and rest. So what, what sort of patterns, uh, you talked about a little bit about, you know, being able to take a walk and then have more inflection. What sort of other patterns do you think are really healthy in terms of picking up on your own energy levels and best, you know, optimizing your, your, your days? Yeah, good question. And there's a, there's a really interesting book by Daniel Pink called When that has a lot of that research in terms of, you know, en energy, understanding the different er energy levels throughout the day and our brains are affected by that. Um, and so I, I like to think of, you know, I'm a, I'm a business owner and I like to think about mental performance in a similar way to physical performance. I'm a, I'm a relatively new runner. I started running about a year and a half ago. And so learning a lot about, you know, active recovery and, and how to kind of optimize your aerobic fitness and that it's not necessarily about overwork it's about under recovery like when we get fatigued and we get injured it's because not necessarily because we're working too hard it's that we're not recovering enough mm -hmm. and so i think with mental performance it's very similar right understanding that you cannot just expect to draw on focus the entire day for 24 hours you just don't have that you're not going to be able to be effective at that, right? So if you want peak performance, you want to operate on a, at a peak level, you have to understand what are the other mechanisms that help your brain restore its energy and recover its energy. And there's, uh, there's a concept put out by the Neuroleadership Institute that's um, called the Healthy Minds Platter. And there's a, a number of different practices that are part of kind of a balanced mental performance throughout the day, right? So focus is one of them, but that should be, you know, interspersed with, so physical exercise is be, besides sleep and nutrition and sleep is kind of the foundation of those three. Like if, if you don't have consistent sleep, 
uh, and quality sleep, exercise and nutrition are not going to work as well for you, right? So sleep is the number one building block. And then you have, um, but so now we're talking about wake during waking hours, how do we, you know, optimize our brain? So physical exercise is the number one thing that the brain really craves. So we can think of exercise as not, not as important for our physical performance as it is for our mental performance. Physical exercise is the most important thing for the brain outside of getting good sleep. And then obviously there's the nutrition component to it too. Um, but in terms of other mental activities, um, playtime, just playing without any focused goal, right? Play is really important, not just for the child, but for the adult brain as well. Um, downtime. And then we talk about not scrolling on social media or watching TV because that still requires focus, right? So downtime is literally things like meditation or just sitting and spacing out, you know? And I find myself do that in, in nature a lot. I love to just sit at, you know, get up to like a high point where I have a view and just sit and just stare for a while. Forest bathing, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Forest bathing. There's a lot of research now on different practices and, and grounding and earthing where you literally like barefoot in the earth or sitting on the on the ground. And there's like, you know, different uh, benefits to that when you're physically connecting with the earth and, and with the ground. And then just this whole thing of, yeah, just letting your your gaze wander without any focused attention that also helps to restore the brain. Then there's also what they would call time in, which is really inward focus. So meditation, uh, mindfulness, just really being aware of what's happening in our surroundings without like a specific focus on something, right? But just focusing more inward of what am I experiencing right now? So those are all practices that are important to kind of layer in with a lot of focused time. Wow. Yeah. And with so many, you know, so much screen time that seems to draw the energy all the time. So to get that back, it's, you know, I call it going, you know, offline, offline time, um, a analog time. A great analogy, like literally going offline and then, uh, yeah, if you can be in nature. So there's another really great book that um, has a, a lot of the, the research about why movement is so important for not just our physical bodies, but our, our brains and, and mental energy as well. It's called The Joy of Movement by Kelly McGonigal. And really there's like the trifecta is physical exercise with other people in nature. That is like the optimal way to really kind of restore and energize the brain because we're social creatures. Our brains are made for social connection. Part of the reason the human brain has such larger volume compared to other animals is uh, the, the literal, literal size and space that's dedicated for processing social information. Um, so connecting socially with others while we're moving and 
in and being in nature at the same time, like all of those three things are really beneficial. And when you put them together, it's like. Oh, I totally get that. Yeah. And so it reminds me of um, in 2010, Christopher McDougall wrote a book called uh, Born to Run. And, you know, I, I still think about that a lot. I was for a while, I got into a phase where I was just really into barefoot running or, you know, with five fingers <laughs> and trail running because um, I hadn't run since high school because running in high school was like go sprint as hard as you can until you literally give yourself bronchitis and asthma in my case. <laughs> and, and this, this whole thing set the tone a little different to all, well, you know, pacing is all about, you're not racing all the time. You're being in nature. You're experiencing that with other people. And there's that huge benefit you get from it. Um, so that I know after that, like a lot of, uh, you know, ultra running, a lot of trail running really started taking off about what that's like 12 years ago. Um, so, how do activities like, uh, you know, like trail running, um, you know, Nordic skiing or all these, you know, group activities where we're together moving through the landscape, what sort of things does that do that fosters that sort of ability? And is it, is it derivative from how we basically evolved over the years of interpreting nature and, you know, looking for signals for hunting for our own, um, sort of, um, developing our food sources? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, and that's uh, interesting, and, and a lot of that research, research is um, reflected in the book, The Joy of Movement, and, and um, which is actually, so I, I, was, I listened to a lot of audiobooks, and, and so I was listening to that book early last year when I just started getting into running, and, and I, I'd always thought of myself as not a runner, because I, I didn't enjoy it, like I didn't feel like I was any good at it, and I would like get chin splints when I tried to run, and I just it just, I couldn't breathe very well when I was running. I'm like, this is just terrible. And I'm not a runner and I'm just not going to run, you know? So I pretty actively avoided running for about 40 years of my life. And, uh, but then I, as I, I'd started kind of getting into running and, and realized that I actually kind of enjoyed it once I kind of get, got over that initial like, painful stage uh, and I read this book and, and I started understanding, you know, some of the, like, as humans, why we're built the way we are. We have, you know, very long thigh bones. We have a large glute muscle, the way our skulls are positioned on our bodies. Everything about how we're physically built is to be able to be an endurance runner. Uh, endurance athlete basically and then doesn't mean we're not necessarily built for speed but we're built for going long distances and so in that book is where I also heard reference to the book Born to Run so of course I got interested in it and I read that too which also talks a lot about you know just how we're built physically um Kelly McGonigal's book talked more about like the, the impact on the brain. And so some of the newer research shows that we push ourselves to the point where we're starting to feel fatigued and we keep going. So you really only get this benefit in endurance, some kind of endurance activity, whether it's long distance running or, you know, um, cross country skiing for a long time, or maybe yeah, mountain biking, if you go for a long time, again, it's like not when you're sprinting, but if you go for a long time, 
you know, you get this, you know, what people have called for a long time, the runner's high, and they're starting to understand better what the runner's high actually is. Um, they used to think it was related to endorphins, and we do tend to get a, a release of endorphins, but endorphins do not have the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so what they're finding is that when we push through going for a long distance, we start to, uh, it activates the endocannabinoid system in the brain and so, and, and in our bodies. So we actually have a release of endocannabinoids, which are, gives us the experience of a very mild cannabis high. And so the body naturally produces this effect, uh, which helps to relieve pain. It helps us not maybe feel as hungry. It gives us a little bit of euphoria where we're like, yeah, I'm feeling really good, you know? Um, and so the question was like, why is our brain wired that way? Like, why do we get this sense of reward after we, you know, push for a long distance? Um, and so the theory is that, you know, back in Paleolithic times when we were hunter gatherers and it might be days between meals, we had to run for a long time to, hunt down prey, we had to maybe walk for days to, to find food. And so the theory is like the, the brain has a built in reward mechanism that allows us to keep going and keep pushing through obstacles and feel good doing it um, so that we can get to food <laughs> and, and survive, right? So I think because that's all those mechanisms are hardwired into us. Um, you know, a lot of people that get into, there's a lot of people that have struggled with depression or recovering drug addicts. They get into long distance running and it actually uh, helps repair a lot of the damage that has been made in the brain. You know, running or long distance endurance sports is the best antidepressant uh, that you can take. It just really helps with managing, regulating our, our emotions. Um, and it can also, yeah, retroactively repair damage that has been done by drugs or, or other, other substances over time. So all of that, you know, there's a lot of other chemicals and, and things that are kind of released in the body. Um, growth hormone, for example, which helps, you know, with just our physical growth and, and the renewal of the cells in our bodies is released when we're, when we're pushing, uh, pushing ourselves physically. So yeah, lots and lots and lots of benefits to physical movement. Um, and then I think the social aspect, again, we we're, we're pack animals. We are, as a human being, we are a hundred percent dependent on another human to take care of us when we're infants, right? We cannot survive on our own. And so as an infant, I am completely, like I'm dependent on somebody else to hear me, to see me, to care enough about me, to feed me, right? So we can't even get our physical needs met until we have our social needs met. So as a, you know, and, and that, is hardwired into us. Like that dependency on other human beings for our survival is also part of our makeup, right? It doesn't go away, which is why every human being has a need to feel seen and heard and valued. Um, and that's because if our caretaker didn't 
care, we would die <laughs> when we're infants. And so, yeah, you see that people, you know, you see it in kids easily, they throw a tantrum if they don't feel like they're being heard or seen, right? But adults do too. That behavior shows up a little differently. Um, but we either protest or we shut down if we don't feel like we're being heard or, or seen in some way. And then you see it with whole groups of people, right? You've seen it across the country last couple of years when whole groups of people don't feel seen or heard, like their needs are being met. They're gonna make noise. And uh, that's just part of who we are. Wow. I know that when, I, when I'm out in the mountains for a long day and I'm doing a couple of things, I'm pushing myself beyond those barriers gradually, not like super intensely, but gradually. Um, and then I'm also experiencing new terrain in, in interpreting that terrain and figuring out where I'm going. That is like the most satisfying feeling, <laughs> especially with, um, if I'm with other people, you know, like long climbing trips or super long bike rides or really long skis. Those are like some of the most memorable experiences in my entire life, you know? And so I'm, I'm wondering what sort of things, you know, how, how do people, how can people be introduced to that sort of feeling as a community building tool? I love that. I mean, I think, I mean, I think you're on to something, right? You, uh, I think just inviting people out and sharing those experiences. Um, but you know, for some of us that aren't used to long distance anything, you know, it's going to take a while. For me, it had to come, it had to be my thing. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be like pushed into it, but I had enough of an introduction to nature growing up that I knew I loved being out in nature. Right. And when I was able to combine that with running, now I can be out for a whole day. And I know that I can trust my body that I'm going to get get through the initial pain that I experienced, right? And then get that sense of reward. Any effort that we can make to just connect with friends in nature and and be out and, you know, like I'm, I'm all for it. Awesome. Well, thanks, Hannah, so much. It was really enlightening speaking with you. And I think it gives gives me a better sense of how to optimize my days and, you know, use that longer energy for outdoors pursuits, more introspection and use more focused energy for my online work periods of uh, specific tasks. So being able to kind of rein those both in and separate, delineate those, I think is really useful, um, you know, to keep our, keep our mind and body working uh, well <laughs> in these challenging times. Yeah. You can learn more about Hannah and her work at multipliersale.com. Visit thelastbestski.com for more information about the book and endurance sport communities in the Bozeman area. Check out thelastbestbike.com for a new book coming out in the summer of 2021. Until next time, happy trails. <laughs>